This is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus, and it's increment 260. And we're going to consider today, in general, the topic of the new covenant and a new exodus. And to that end, Father, renew a right spirit within me that I may communicate your word properly and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We are and have been considering for some time, and I don't see an end to it yet, the enormously important, the significant topic called the New Covenant. This is something that appears in the beginning of the heart of Hebrews, and it is Hebrews 8, 8b through 12, which we're going to look at again today and again perhaps in the coming increments. And this constitutes the longest quotation of an Old Testament verse in the New Testament, or better, the New Covenant writings. Hebrews 8, 8b through 12, my translation reads like this. Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out. Now, this is where we have a Greek word of some significance for our topic today. When I led them out is the word E-X-A-G-A-G-E-I-N. That is the aorist active infinitive form of the verb exago. And that's related to the word Exodus, as we'll see later on in our teaching today, exago. When I took hold of their hand and led them out, exago, of the land of Egypt, a place where they were enslaved. For they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them, said the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel. I'm, that's a literal translation. This is the covenant noun that I will covenant, verb, with the house of Israel. The repetition of the word diathekes here in a verbal form as well as a noun form emphasizes the fact that it's God who is the maker of the covenant and its fulfiller, that it is a unilateral covenant, that it is a, an emphatically unconditional covenant. For this is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts. I will inscribe them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people, and none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me, from the least to the greatest, because I will be merciful to their wickedness, lawlessness, literally, and I will never again remember their sins. This quote begins with the attention-grabbing figure of speech called asterismos, A-S-T-E-R, 
ISMOS. That's what we would call an asterisk. Asterisk or asterisk, both are correct in the English language. And it's a figure of speech for the word idu, which we sometimes see archaically translated as behold. So this quote begins with the attention-grabbing asterismos, idu, or I would rather translate it as look, exclamation point. And again, often translated in the scriptures somewhat anachronistically as behold. Now, it's not bad, but I like look better. It's obvious that the Lord, speaking in his prophet, is commanding the attentiveness of the addressees. Of the five transcendent precepts, we have, first of all, be attentive, followed by be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, and be in love. Be attentive is what he's commanding here. The importance of what is about to be said is dramatically signaled by this word, asterismos, this asterismos word, idu, which is often used in the scriptures. And it does not say, says Jeremiah, even though this passage is from Jeremiah. It says, says the Lord. In Hebrews 1.1, God spoke to the fathers in the prophets. And here's one of the prime examples. This is how the whole homily starts in Hebrews 1.1. Hebrews 8.8b through 12 is a prime example of God speaking to the fathers and the prophets. This may be, in fact, the central quote of the many quotations of the Old Testament in Hebrews. When God spoke by the prophets, he spoke univocally. That means consistently and with one voice, univocally. He was speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, and him crucified. When God spoke by the prophets, according to Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he spoke univocally and across the board of the restoration of all things, Acts 3.21. So in all the prophets, we have a hint at the cosmic implications of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christ event. Again, not only did he speak univocally of the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21, he spoke also of Jesus the Messiah and of him crucified, then raised and exalted, of his Messiah entering into his glory through suffering. Luke 24, 26 to 27, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, the glory into which he entered is a glory of a new covenant that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, which is in opposition to and in contrast with the fading glory of the old covenant that shone from the masked face of Moses as we are seeing in a, a, a well, we'd call it an interweaving of 2 Corinthians 3 with Hebrews 8. 
Consequently, when the Lord speaks of making a new covenant, this new covenant is not divorced from the suffering and glory of the Messiah, nor is it separated from the restoration or the making new of all things. There is an intimate connection between the new covenant and the prediction of it and the prediction of the new creation of all things. When God spoke in the prophets to the fathers, we always should be attentive. And now, wonder of wonders, in these last days, God has spoken in a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality, who upholds the universe by his omnipotent decree, that decree being to tell us thy, and who carries everything that happens in this universe of proportionate being through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, a salvific end, a redemptive end, who has made purification for sins, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now the very essence, which is pneuma, the spirit, the essence of all prophecy, is the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 19.10, a standout verse in the Apocalypse of John. It is startlingly true that reality, with a capital R, has all of its essence in Jesus. There is no reality apart from Jesus. Reality is Jesus. All the reality of God, of man, of angels, and of the universe, the heavens and the earth, is Jesus. Jesus Christ and him crucified. A crucified Jew in A.D. 30 outside the gates of old Jerusalem is the reality of God, the reality of love, the reality of the God of love, the reality of God who is love. God who spoke in Jeremiah of the making of a new covenant is God who speaks in his Son, the mediator of that new covenant, whose obedience in the days of his flesh to the extent of his endurance of the death of the cross confirmed the new covenant. His obedience demonstrated that the laws of God were put in the minds of the house of Israel and Judah and inscribed upon their hearts. Jesus is where that was fulfilled, in Jesus' mind and heart and in his actions and finally in his passion. We've spoken already about how this new covenant is not like the old covenant and about how the fulfillment of that new covenant occurs by the indwelling spirit 
in an operation of the Spirit and of righteousness by looking at what God spoke in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, and again in Jeremiah 32, 40, Septuagint 39, 40, and by interweaving elements of 2 Corinthians, especially 2 Corinthians 3 up to now, specifically with regard to the new covenant and its competent ministers. We have learned about what it is to be ministers of the new covenant, to be competent ministers of a new covenant, to be within the operation of the Holy Spirit in a ministry of righteousness and not condemnation, in a ministry of life and not death, in a ministry of the Spirit and not the letter. And because we have this ministry, a ministry of the Spirit and of life, and of righteousness or justification. And because we have received mercy, we faint not. We don't faint. We don't quit and we don't give up. Second Corinthians 4.1 So we have been weaving into the warp and weft of our study. Ten affirmations of Tetelestai Phalanx, one of which is we don't give up. We can't quit. We don't quit because we can't quit because God does not quit on us. We will be dealing with another verse, incidentally, perhaps next Wednesday from the scriptures where God speaks in Isaiah about a new covenant. He spoke in Jeremiah about it, specifically here, in Jeremiah 31 to, 30, 31 to 34, he spoke of it in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. But we're going to be seeing another passage in Isaiah where God speaks of the new covenant and how a climactic passage in Romans correlates elegantly with our passage. But that's next time. For now, God says in Jeremiah... I will be their God. In John 20, 17, following his resurrection from the dead, Jesus spoke of God as my God and your God. That was the message that Mary of Magdala was to communicate to his brothers, he called them, the disciples. He spoke of God as my God and your God. His God was the God of Mary, of Magdala, and of Peter, and of James, and of John, and of the beloved disciple, and of the others. Jesus did this because Jesus and the New Covenant community are together one entity. He that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one, of one entity and of one God and one Father, the new covenant community, the proleptic new creation. There again we see the interconnection between the new creation and the new covenant. The new covenant community is the proleptic new creation. 
and the one new man. You'll see scripture references about these things throughout the printed version, which will be forthcoming also and on the website. Happy then indeed is the people whose God is the Lord. And the new covenant community is the people of God whose God is the Lord. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant God of Israel. So we are the people of God, says 1 Peter 2.10, whom God proudly calls my people. They will be my people. I will be their God. God speaks, as we might say, humanly here, or from a human analogy, as a proud father. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's my people. He points to them proudly, we may say, as a human analogy. And the new covenant community, therefore, as Jesus also proudly calls them, us, his brothers, his siblings, his brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. Once we were not a people at all, says Peter, in a very revealing text. Once we were not a people at all, but now we are the people of God. The reason for that is simple. It isn't because we've earned anything. It isn't because we have deserved anything. It's because, as he goes on to say, once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Why are we the people of God? Because we have received mercy. It's saving mercy. It's the saving mercy that God intends to show to all of humanity, and that is his unstoppable resolution. That saving mercy has already been shown to us, the New Covenant community, a prolepsis or a forecast of the universal human community redeemed. Now we have received mercy. Now that same passage, 1 Peter 2.10, echoes in 2 Corinthians 4.1 because it says, now since we have, we have this ministry, speaking of the ministry which is the operation of the Lord the Spirit in the New Covenant community, not an operation of judgment or condemnation, but an operation of justification, not an operation of the letter, but of the spirit, not an operation involving death, like the letter that kills, but a life-giving ministry. And Paul says, since we have this ministry and we have received mercy, both are in that, 2 Corinthians 4.1, we don't give up. We've received mercy, mercy by which we are the people of God. It is not by works of righteousness but according to his mercy, he saved us, Titus 3.5. That's a mercy that he intends to show and, in fact, has already shown in Jesus Christ and him crucified to all humanity, Israel and the nations. Once we had not received mercy, so we were not a people. We were not a cohesive people group. 
But now we have received mercy, mercy which constitutes us as the people of God. The mercy that God intends to show to all, saving mercy to all in Romans 11.32. That's our God. That's our Father. The reference to God taking the hand of the ancestors of the houses of Israel and Judah and leading them out of Egypt is a reference to the Exodus, as it's more popularly known. The Lord taking them by the hand is a salvific image, an image of salvation, an image of deliverance, of rescue, of liberation. Now, we dealt with this a little bit on Increment 259 on Sunday, but I want to fan it out just slightly, ever so slightly. The reference to God taking the hand, again, of the ancestors of the houses of Israel and Judah, or Israel, the sons of Israel, is a salvific image of the Exodus. In connection with this image of the Lord taking someone by the hand, consider again Mark 5.41. Then Jesus took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. He took her by the hand. Talitha kum is an Aramaic phrase. Mark allows for these phrases to come into his writing. Because though he was reading, writing to a largely Greek-speaking world, Jesus spoke almost exclusively in Aramaic. And Talitha kum, and I've only read one source that said this, comes from a word Talitha, which comes from a, an Aramaic root word that means lamb. So in effect, Jesus is saying, little lamb, arise. Little girl, is perhaps a good translation also, and it's the one that's almost uniformly used in all translations. But I like to think of that as him saying, little lamb, arise. The Greek word for arise is related to exago in one way, as we'll see, and we're doing a little bit of a word study here today, but the word for arise is egera, e g. E-I-R-A. And Egera, which is from the lemma or the lemma, the word Egero, is one of two, one of two words in the New Testament that denotes resurrection. In the very next verse, the second common word for resurrection, which is anistemi, A-N-I-S-T-A-E-M-I, anistemi, anistemi. These are the two primary words in the New Testament for resurrection. So it's interesting that first to a 12-year-old girl, a little girl, he calls from the sleep of death, takes her by the hand, and removes her from the realm of death. As this same Lord 
took the sons of Israel by the hand, two million of them, and removed them from the slavery of Egypt, which was a symbol of sin and death and slavery. And so in Mark 5.42, immediately the girl arose, that's Anistemi, and was walking around. Parenthesis, she was 12 years old. The Bible wants us to know that she was a young girl. So Jesus, the Lord, used the Aramaic word in his speech. We don't have that in our translation, but it's equivalent to the Greek egero. As he took this little girl by the hand and led her up out of the sleep of death. Now consider what Jesus did with a little boy this time, whom he liberated from possession by an evil spirit. We are living in a time when people are possessed by various spirits, by, and when generations are even possessed or indwelt by destructive spirits, and when nations even are indwelt by destructive spirits. So now is the time for the people of God to be thoroughly possessed by God. So we glorify God in our bodies, which are possessed by God, in 1 Corinthians 6.20. That's the only hope for our nation. Now consider, again, this time, what Jesus did in the case of a little boy, whom he liberated from possession by an evil spirit. This shortly after the transfiguration experience in Mark 9. In Mark 9.27, the boy had been thrown into a fit by the spirit as the spirit was leaving him. And the boy was on the ground, basically. And Jesus, verse 27, taking him by the hand, Jesus raised him up. There's the word egero again. And he stood up, and there's the word anistemi again, both the frequently used words for resurrection in this verse. And so, egero and anistemi. Mark very creatively includes episodes in his very brief account that happened in the days of Jesus' flesh to bring a complete picture of the resurrection of all humanity whom God made originally male and female, calling their name collectively Adam, Genesis 5.2. And so it's by means of this that we all, all the human race in all of its times and historical eras in the glorious freedom of the children of God. This is the resurrection. We enter into a state of childlike freedom, pure childlike liberty and liberation at play, we could say, in the fields of the Lord. Now, 
My faithful co-laborer Emery is recording me today, and he doesn't know that this happened, but Sunday, and someday I should write a book that between the pulpit and my waiting room, the things that happened, the fellowship that's had, but Emery's grandchildren, Junior and Brooklyn, were both standing sort of at my feet while I was talking with some adults in the ministry. And I was explaining this about resurrection, about the little girl and the little boy entering into the freedom. And us, our resurrection is going to be our entry into the glorious freedom of the children of God in Romans 8, 21. And then I looked down and I saw little Brooklyn and Junior. They were kind of looking up. And I said to them, are you guys... Happy or sad? And they both said instantly, happy! And then they begin to run down the hallway. We have a very long hallway. They just began to abandonly run down the hallway. And I said, there's the illustration of resurrection. We're going to just be childlike, happy in the Lord, and just running with abandon. It's liberation, the glorious liberation of the children of God. They didn't have to think about it. Let's see, are we happy or sad? They just said, happy. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. And they were just instructed in the word in their Sunday school class. And they were, in fact, very happy. It even made the adults around that were talking very happy. So it's by this means when Jesus takes us by the hand and leads us into resurrection. All the human race in all of its times and historical eras will enter into the glorious freedom of the children of God, as will the entirety of the created universe. Genesis 5.2 then is the first indication of a collective of all of humanity, male and female. In the first man, Adam, for the scripture says he made them male and female and called them Adam collectively. Adam, the first, who was a type of the antitype, Jesus Christ. And we see in Galatians 3.28 that in Jesus Christ there is neither male nor female, meaning that there is not this antithesis or antinomy between male and female, but male and female, all in Christ, in the one man, Christ Jesus, the one human being, the Son of Man. And so the second man, the last Adam, is he in whom all of humanity, male and female, are included by the act of God in redemption and salvation. Both of these gospel episodes are foreshadows of the universal resurrection that will occur at the parousia, when in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22 Now given these tender images of Jesus with the little girl and with the little boy and bringing them into the freedom and liberation of life in him, Given these tender images, and I'm sort of repeating myself from Sunday, but with a little amplification, we may ask ourselves whether God the Father took Jesus by the hand 
when he led him up. Notice another word that relates to exago, anistemi, egairo, this time anago, A-N-A-G-O. Anago, it's found in Hebrews 13.20, where it says that the God of peace led up from the dead. The great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Given these images, we may ask ourselves whether God the Father took Jesus by the hand when he led him up or brought him up from the realm, or we could say the land of the dead in Hebrews 13.20. Perhaps God, his Father, even said something to Jesus to the effect of, my child, arise, as if he was waking him up in the morning. Or even perhaps he could have said, my lamb, arise. For Jesus is the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. We may also imagine it to be a wonderfully tender moment, as I've said again, this is a reiteration, but I think it bears repetition with amplification. We must imagine a wonderfully tender moment when the father said to his son, in another key standout verse, Psalm 110.1, one in the Septuagint, quoted and alluded to twice in Hebrews. When the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. Especially considering that the Father must have taken notice that the feet of his child the lamb, had been pierced and scarred. In any case, it's a matter of astonishment that speaking of the experience of the transfiguration, there only Luke writes of this incidentally. While on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was speaking with Moses and Elijah about the event of his death and resurrection that was coming up. And he spoke of it in terms of exodon. Exodon, an exodus. Let me write that in the English transliteration. Exodon, so it looks like what it looks like, exodus. That's Luke 9.31. Only Luke writes about this. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was speaking of his own exodus, his own being taken by the hand of his father and taken out from the realm of death after experiencing a death in which would be poured out the blood of the new covenant. So when Jesus arose from the dead, so effectively did all of the humanity of males and females, all humanity, male and female, little boys and little girls, men and women, all who were once collectively in Adam are now collectively Christ, 
the whole Christ. When one died for all, all died. This is the determination of Scripture. This is a deliberate statement and judgment of Scripture. So if one died, when one died, all died, then when this one rose, we could say effectively that all rose from the dead. This is the change of human situation, which has yet to become the actual change of the human condition, and it will. When Jesus arose from the dead, so effectively did all of humanity, males and females, little boys, little girls, men and women, all who were once collectively Adam, collectively they are Adam, now collectively they are Christ the whole Christ, the supreme good. And all of this is on account of the blood of Jesus, which is the blood of the everlasting new covenant, which has been poured out for many. That means all. It is notably the God of peace in Hebrews 13.20, who is said to have led Jesus up from the dead. This is the ultimate exodus. It's ultimately a universal exodus because the God of peace, and it's remarkably important that he's called that in Hebrews 13, 20, and that we understand that he's called the God of peace. Precisely because he is God who, in Christ, made peace by the blood of the cross of the Son of his love. He made peace by the blood of his cross. Whose cross? the cross of the son of his love, Colossians 1.13, connected with Colossians 1.20, compared with Romans 5.9 to 11, 2 Corinthians 5.19. And that includes the reconciliation of all things, that is, includes all of humanity, all of the angels, all beings, and all of creation, which is currently awaiting its exodus, its liberation, from slavery to corruption, Romans 8, 19 to 23. So in Hebrews, as well as elsewhere in the New Covenant writings, which we call the New Testament, there are warnings. Now, we can't neglect these. I've been giving you some mighty good news here. And this, I'm going to say, what I'm going to say now includes a warning, but even that fits in the realm of good news. There is no bad news in the good news. But in Hebrews, as well as elsewhere in the New Covenant writings, the 27 documents we see collected in what is known as the New Testament, and I'm going to spend a little time down the road talking about the New Testament being a proper title for that collection of 27 documents. But in the New Testament writings, there are warnings, sometimes pretty stern ones. And we've noted that in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, in Hebrews 10, 26, and following, and these should not be ignored. So I want to walk on two legs or stand on two legs as a preacher. I want to teach, but I want to mourn, and I want to have this balanced exposition and exhortation, as Hebrews is a perfectly balanced exhortation and also exposition, teaching and warning. The act of universal everlasting salvation does not preclude warnings of particular temporal perishing. 
for we who are in the time in between the two great eschatological alterations are also between the resurrection of Jesus and the general resurrection, as it's called, when all are made alive in Christ in their condition, in their actual bodily condition. In this time in between, there is the law of sowing and reaping. And I'm not speaking of the demonically conceived doctrine of karma, but the gracious divine operation of providence, whereby those who sow to the flesh, that's capital F, L-E-S-H, reap a harvest of misery in this life, but in this life only. And that sometimes that harvest goes up to the point of death and even brings people sometimes to an untimely death because of sowing to the flesh. But on the other hand, those who sow to the spirit reap a harvest not only in this life, but one which extends to the life to come. That story is told in Galatians 6, 7 to 8. I'm not going to exegete it thoroughly right now. I have in the past. I will again in the future, hopefully. That the Lord's taking them by the hand and leading them out of the land of Egypt, speaking of the ancestors of the recipients of Hebrews, when the Lord took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt where they had been enslaved, that was an act of salvation. That it was a saving act is made quite explicit in Jude, Jude 1.5 to be exact. In the same verse, however, Jude reminds his readers of the subsequent perishing of some who were saved. This is the year of the perishing and of the being saved. Notice Jude 1. I've translated it from the Greek text. Now I'm resolved to remind you, though you know all these things, he says to his readers, that the Lord, having once and for all saved, sozo, S-O-Z-O, sozo, having once and for all saved the people out of the land of Egypt, the people, meaning the people of God, subsequently caused those who did not believe to perish, apalumi. Very strangely here, we have both being saved and perishing applying to some of the same people, A-P-O-L-L-U-M-I, apolumi, related to the noun Apolia, which is perishing. I'm resolved to remind you that though you know these things already, they knew the history of Israel, that the Lord having once and for all saved the people out of, the, out of Egypt subsequently caused those who did not believe to perish. Now does this mean that God eternally saves and then causes people to eternally perish? No. Notice first that the exodus, the act of God leading the people out of the land of Egypt, was a decidedly saving event. Having once and for all saved the people out of the land of Egypt, taking them by the hand and leading them up out of the land of Egypt was an act of saving the people. The exodus is a saving event. 
It's a type of the antitype of the saving event of the cross. It was an act initiated, orchestrated, and performed entirely by God while Israel, for example, at the Red Sea, was commanded to just stand still and watch the salvation of the Lord. The Greek translation of Jeremiah 31:32, which is the Septuagint 38:32, and found in Hebrews 8:9, is that the Lord disregarded them after leading them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. But that was due to their willful unbelief and apostasy. The pastoral author is skillfully weaving a warning into the warp and weft of Hebrews urgently cautioning his readers that their apostasy could also lead to perishing. But please notice that both the salvation and the perishing in Jude 1.5 were events that, occurred, events that occurred in time in history. They contained no connotation of eternal perishing. Jesus also linked unbelief with perishing or dying in John 8.21 and 8.24, a passage that should be examined very carefully by serious students of the word of God. He warned his opponents there that they would die in their sins on account of their sin, singular, of unbelief that Jesus is their Messiah. This is not a warning of eternal perishing, but of dying in a state of sinfulness, what we might call the sin leading to death in 1 John 5, 16 to 17. And it also refers specifically to the historical judgment on Jerusalem where some of them right there talking with him would go to seek him, Yahweh, Yeshua, after having rejected him and his once and for all sacrifice for sins and sin. So throughout this time in between, there is an element of warning in all good Bible teaching. In all teaching, that is, in which God empowers the teachers. In Colossians 1.29, if God is empowering the teacher, then over the course of some time, that teacher will be teaching and warning but he will be preaching Christ. As Paul wrote in Colossians 1, my translation from the Greek text, verses 24 to 28 reads this way. Now I'm rejoicing in these sufferings in your behalf, for I'm also filling up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, those sufferings that are continuing, that is, in the time in between the two great alterations, for his body. That is the messianic community. We call it the new covenant community. Of which I was made a minister in keeping with the stewardship that God gave to me to make the message of God fully known. To make the message of God fully known is to bring out the mystery, which we're going to do a little bit here and perhaps next Wednesday. That being the mystery, verse 26, that was concealed from the beings of the ages and the people of generations, but now manifested in his saints, or to his saints, better. Verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the wealth of the glory of this mystery. 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I said all that to say, verse 28, we proclaim him, warning everyone we can and teaching everyone we can with every insight in order to present everyone we can as complete teleos in Christ Jesus. Notice proclamation of Christ. That's according to the revelation of the mystery. Notice warning everyone he can. We warn everyone we can. We teach everyone we can in order to present everybody we can as mature in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, that will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Spiritual completion in Christ Jesus is the result of receiving warnings as well as being the recipients of multiple transforming insights. Hebrews, the homily we're studying now and have since 2020, is a wonderful example of the proclamation of Christ with the perfectly balanced elements of teaching and warning, of exposition and exhortation. It is in every way a model biblical sermon. We'll close by looking again at Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts I will inscribe them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Now let me show this by an illustration. If I place my own will in you and ask or command you to do something and you do it, it is not ultimately you who have willed that action. Is it not ultimately me who has willed that action? And if I put in you my power to accomplish that action, is it not ultimately me who accomplishes that action? Well, if it is not me doing it but you, and this could be argued, then what if we go further and if I myself by my spirit came into you to possess you? What if I myself by my spirit came into you to possess you and then willed in you and did in you? Would it not be said that I willed and accomplished in you what results in my pleasure? Well, God has done this. God has placed his own will in us. In fact, God, beyond that, has come into us to possess us with his will and his power. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to act for his good purpose or his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And this takes us back to the new covenant and one of its better promises. 
I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts I will inscribe them. Hebrews 8.10. That's one of the better promises. He doesn't inscribe the laws and chisel them on stones outside of them, which is the letter which they must comply with by the insufficiency of their flesh. No, this time he writes on fleshly tablets of the human heart, chiseling on our hearts. And that means in our intention. When he writes it on our heart, he means he puts the intention in us puts it in our mind, our intents, our intention, and then puts the power in us to do it. That's one of the better promises that accompanies the new covenant. In league with that promise then is, and I keep referring to this on purpose, Ezekiel 36, 27, and I will give my spirit in you so that you will conduct yourselves in my righteous deeds and keep my judgments and do them. And here's another correlation in this connection. Ecclesiastes 3.14 says, God acts so that they fear before him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God in you, you see. God acts in a way that we will fear before him and have awesome reverential awe before him. And this goes along with Jeremiah 32.40, which we've alluded to, under affirmation, or under tetelestai affirmation, we don't give up. And I will make an everlasting covenant, diathekein aeonion, with them, which I will never turn away from behind their back. And I will give into their heart the reverence toward me so that they may never depart from me. What have we been doing this evening? in this increment? Well, we've been simply doing an exegesis of the prophetic prediction of the new covenant from Jeremiah in Hebrews 8, 8b through 12, but in no particular order. Father, thank you, and may these thoughts circulate in our stream of consciousness so that we, in fact, We'll have the experience of your laws being written on the fleshly tables of our human hearts. We thank you that you've taken away from us a stony heart and placed within us a heart of flesh and that that heart of flesh is Jesus Christ's own heart, his own mind and his own intent in us. For we have the mind of Christ. Grant us the grace to let it be in us and let it be effective in us. For we ask it in his name. Amen.